All right. Welcome, one and all, to this fifth episode of The Paleo Conservative. Today we'll be concluding a two-parter I've entitled Trust and Safety. We're examining why so many on the left seem to feel so unsafe and so unwell. Is the left okay? When last we spoke, I proposed to cover two topics. Firstly, why are people suddenly so dissatisfied with the state of things, primarily from a social justice perspective, when those things are generally better than they were in the not-too-distant past? And secondly, I mentioned that something seems to be going wrong mental health-wise with young leftists these days, and I wanted to discuss that. Several people have been speaking on the subject since the CDC released a report in February showing that teenage girls in particular seem affected. But liberals in general, they just seem to have some legit, measurable mental health issues. Several articles have been written on the subject. I'll reference a few, and I will obviously credit their authors. Picking things back up, you may recall I referenced something called the Tocqueville effect, named after an observation by Alexei de Tocqueville that, as people become more equal, they get more and more annoyed by minor inequalities. As the world seemingly becomes more socially just, they grow angry at the lack of social justice. It does sound a bit like today. No surprise, this is also referred to as the Tocqueville paradox. Now, Tocqueville wasn't a prophet of the Lord. He was just a guy who made some observations a couple hundred years ago. He could be wrong, or he could be right, but just right in a way that's irrelevant to what we're experiencing now. But still, that such an odd and counterintuitive observation would seem to be coming to pass, it's really hard to ignore. In many ways, this Tocqueville interpretation, it's, it's a bit fatalistic. It suggests that there's a certain amount of discontent just baked into human nature, and if you don't give people causes to fight against, we'll invent newer and more frivolous crusades. But we know this happens, and it happens a lot. Before we look for exotic explanations, maybe we should at least consider more mundane causes, like simple self-interest. There's an organization you've probably heard of called GLAAD. It's G-L-A-A-D. It's an acronym. When they were founded in 1985, it stood for Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Their goal was to make sure gay people were not being disparaged in the media. TV shows, news coverage, movies, whatever. Well, first of all, They've won, obviously, right? If you watch or listen to any sort of media produced by any mainstream American company, you know that gay people are represented vastly out of proportion to their share of the actual population. Whether you're watching documentaries on ancient Rome or gardening, or especially if you're watching kids' shows, they're working round the clock to make sure your kids know that being gay is normal and it's awesome. So I guess this means GLAAD will announce they've achieved their core stated goals. They'll begin to scale down fundraising and they'll give their employees a generous severance package as they cut back most staff. But obviously, no, that's not what they did. They canceled the acronym in their title. No longer is the focus merely gay and lesbian. Now they advocate for the vast panoply of LGBTQ plus identities, ensuring that we are, for example, quote, centering and lifting up the voices of black LGBTQ people. We have Trans Awareness Week, a particular focus on Spanish language and Latin X representation and so on. In the military, we might call this mission creep, but it's worked out pretty well for GLAD. Between 2014 and 2020, fundraising more than tripled from 4.9 million to over 17 million. And on the subject of self-interest, Robin D'Angelo, author of several books, the most famous of which is White Fragility, obviously bases her entire living off profiting from racism. In the accountability statement on her website, she estimates that she makes around 14 grand per speaking engagement. Her career literally depends on the spread and growth of racism, or at least the perception of racism. And business is good. But even though the diversity, equity, and inclusion industrial complex is running rampant and has taken over a lot of important institutions, I'm inclined to call it a symptom and not the cause. Now, there's another very easy way to create more inequity and injustice in the world, though. You just change the definition. We've seen this most obviously with racism. You may have heard people say more colloquially that racism is prejudice plus power. So if a white person got beat up by a black person for being white, that's not racism. It's just 
Well, I don't know, but they'll tell you it's not racism. As recently as 2016, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary provided a very straightforward definition of racism. Simply, one, a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capabilities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. And two, racial prejudice or discrimination. But then it started evolving, leaving us with an alternate set of definitions. Now we have the systematic oppression of a racial group to the social, economic, and political advantage of another and, quote, a political or social system founded on racism and designed to execute its principles. So now we've expanded racism to include structural racism. And since, of course, racism is woven into the very fabric of American society, you're free to find racism quite literally anywhere. Similarly, of course, we have the patriarchy. If you can't find actual sexism, you make a vague nod towards patriarchy, and obviously no one can argue with that. But I think we can actually do even better than that. The problem with structural racism is that it's fatalistic. It's demotivating. If you tell me that racism is just a non-negotiable component of American life, what am I to even do with that? I may as well go protest gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. We need to make racism personal again. Any good religious movement needs a call to action. And to that end, we received Ibram X. Kendi, author of the massive bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Early in the book, he defines, by his way of thinking, various aspects of racism. For example, on racist policies, a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequality between racial groups. By policy, I mean written and unwritten laws, rules, procedures, processes, regulations, and guidelines that govern people. There is no such thing as a non-racist or race-neutral policy. And then he clarifies later, quote, Racist policy says exactly what the problem is and where the problem is. Institutional racism and structural racism and systemic racism are redundant. Racism itself is institutional, structural, and systemic. I will say also that he rejects that prejudice plus power take on racism. Later in the book, he criticizes what he calls the powerless defense, which he describes as the illusory, concealing, disempowering, and racist idea that black people can't be racist because black people don't have power. And for full disclosure, I kind of enjoy his writing. I like his style. A lot of the book feels like a travelogue, which I didn't expect, but when it comes time to explain his ideas, he tends to do so well. He reduces concepts to their simplest forms, which I appreciate, and he'll try to chase ideas to their logical conclusions, even if those conclusions are sometimes counterintuitive. I think he's mostly wrong with a lot of his conclusions, but that's fine. Anyways, with the groundwork laid, we can define a racist as one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Now, if you were a shareholder in Racism Incorporated around the time this book rose to popularity, your stock price went through the roof. Racism was now quite literally everywhere. If you were living in an isolated cabin Unabomber style with no contact with humanity, well, who cares? You're still a racist. Never performed a racist act, said a racist thing, or had a racist thought? Clearly, racist. And around this time, you might have heard people calling one another non-racists as an insult. It's strange but true. A non-racist is someone who is aware of racism and who has opted not to engage in it directly, but apparently has not fully adopted the posture of an anti-racist. Someone who has seen the light but did not follow it. An apostate. But again, Dr. Kendi didn't cause all this. As I think I mentioned last time, Americans had been upbeat about race relations for decades now. In 2013, about 70% of us said relations between white and black people were good or very good. Now only 44% do. That's a big drop. How to be an anti-racist didn't come out until 2019 or so. The trend was well underway before then. And maybe Kendi's book was just what the world needed at the time. It would be a little awkward to have so much racism, but so few racists. 
So remember, what we're exploring here is this. Why are leftists so unhappy recently in matters of human and civil rights when all signs suggest things are significantly better? What possible objective metric could show that things are worse in terms of race, gay rights, or women's rights than a decade or two ago? I will say that those numbers on perceived racism have an odd parallel with other numbers. Around the same time, 2012-2013, we also saw the start of a major jump in young people, especially younger liberals, saying that they're depressed or reporting that they had been diagnosed with a mental health condition. All sorts of things started to change in a similar time frame. Teens who say they meet up with their friends almost every day suddenly plummeted in the 2010s. Teens who say, a lot of times I feel lonely, nearly doubled. We see record high number of kids saying over-the-top stuff like, sometimes I feel life isn't worth living. And it's not outrageous to suggest that a generation of depressive teenagers will turn into a depressed adults. Look at increases in opiate abuse and drug overdoses in young adults, those teenagers of 10 years ago who've all grown up. I know I spent a lot of time talking about how much better life is in recent years, but in short order, a surprising amount has gone wrong for young people, or clearly they think it has. So maybe this also explains the supposed rise in racism. If you ask a bunch of depressed people if things are getting better or worse in just about any area, no big surprise, they might say it's worse. Maybe we're experiencing some sort of phantom racism. So who knows, maybe we solved the one mystery, but we still have no idea what's wrong with these kids today. As you can imagine, a lot of people are speculating about the causes of this. Taylor Lorenz has a novel view on the whole thing. Quote, people are like, why are kids so depressed? It must be their phones. But never mention the fact we're living in a late stage capitalist hellscape during an ongoing deadly pandemic with record wealth inequality, zero social safety net slash job security as climate change cooks the world. She follows, not to be a doomer, but you have to be delusional to look at life in our country right now and have any amount of hope or optimism. So, nearly 40-year-old child of privilege Taylor Lorenz wants depressed youngsters to know that they're not being nearly fatalistic enough. I think we can write this one off and move on. Interesting that Taylor says that, though, because it ties nicely into an essay written by Jill Filipovich a month or so back, which has a few passages outlining one possible explanation. This is a longish quote from her substack, and if it were proper, I'd read even more of it because I think her writing on the subject is just excellent. Here we go. Quote, I'm increasingly convinced that there are tremendously negative long-term consequences, especially to young people, coming from this reliance on the language of harm and accusations that the things one finds offensive are, quote, deeply problematic or even violent. Just about everything researchers understand about resilience and mental well-being suggests that people who feel like they are the chief architects of their own life, to mix metaphors that they are captain of their own ship, not that they are simply being tossed around by an uncontrollable ocean, are vastly better off than people whose default position is victimization, hurt, and a sense that life simply happens to them and they have no control over their response. By the way, the term you'll often see describing this sort of behavior is catastrophizing. I think the etymology of the word is pretty obvious. Jonathan Haidt co-wrote a book published in 2019 on the subject, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mr. Haidt more recently has been working to illustrate the apparent connection between this sort of thinking and liberals in particular. So I'm going to oversimplify and call this hypothesis A. Kids are being given a distorted view of harm, and they're being deprived of the opportunity to hear ideas which may challenge their views, and this ultimately leads to a sense of helplessness and fragility. We might call this an update on the decades-old concept of learned helplessness. And then there's hypothesis B, which may seem more obvious if you think about it. The rise of smartphones and the newer generation of social media. The iPhone was introduced in 2007, which of course was well before the mental health trend started to really present itself. But Instagram, for example, came along in 2010, so it fits. Height focuses on Tumblr as an early source for some of the more poisonous ideologies, and I can't help but to agree there as well. 
Tumblr was the proving ground for virtually every ludicrous gender identity or sexual orientation you may have ever heard of. TikTok may have taken over the spotlight lately, but Tumblr really put this stuff on the map. He also spent some time discussing the animosity between the Tumblr crowd and 4chan, which shows a very clear split in how and which social media platform was used by people of different ideologies. Here's a quote. The young identity activists on Tumblr embrace their new notions of identity, fragility, and trauma all the more tightly increasingly saying that words are a form of violence. While the young men on 4chan moved in the opposite direction, they brandished a rough and rude masculinity in which status was gained by using words more insensitively than the next guy. It was out of this reciprocal dynamic that today's cancel culture was born in the early 2010s. I will confess to feeling a certain kinship with the lads of 4chan myself, so I guess I'm not an entirely impartial observer to all this. Anyways, for some time now, people have been worried about body image issues due to Instagram or the excessive materialism it promotes or the fake hollow facsimile of happiness that so-called influencers exude. And of course, we've been concerned about the vast house of horrors that is TikTok since its rise in popularity. Conspiracy theories about TikTok being a Chinese ploy to make Americans dumber? Sign me up. But still, none of this provides a conclusive cause, and not to sound pessimistic here, but we are dealing with the realm of the social sciences, which aren't exactly hard sciences. People will probably be debating the cause of this for decades hence. I guess I'll say at this point, we really shouldn't make this overly political or gloat that liberals' children are seemingly unhealthy. I don't think I mentioned this particular statistic yet, but over 50% of liberal women between 18 and 29 say that a healthcare provider has told them that they had a mental health condition. That's stunning, more than twice the rate of conservative women, almost twice that of moderates. Liberal men, it's a bit over 30%, but again, more than twice the number for conservative men. And also, Jonathan Haidt put these numbers together. He pulled them from a Pew Research publication. Oh, and liberal women aged 30 to 49 came in at about 40%, and again, that's not great. But regardless, if in fact we've got such a huge segment of the population who ends up unable to face the rigors of adult life, that just sounds like a huge problem to me. I'm sure you know this, but at least one field which is dominated by the left is education, both in terms of higher education, curricula for training new teachers, but also the people actually doing the teaching today. No big surprise then that children are increasingly being taught a very race-conscious ideology. I was raised, and I know this sounds completely archaic, but I was raised to be colorblind to race. But now our children are very likely taught, certainly if they're taught with a left-leaning curriculum, that race is a vital part of every person's identity. In an especially leftist district, they'll be taught that their race either makes them an oppressor or oppressed. Either they face generational trauma or generational guilt. What sex education I received focused on the differences and roles of male and female bodies. Awkward, but straightforward. Now, again, especially in liberal districts, they have Pride Month, they have Trans Awareness Days, we have teachers bragging about children coming out as transgender to them, and yes, we really do have Drag Queen Story Hour. We also have this ideology of harm, of grief, and of trauma making its way into school systems. And of course, all of this is a grand experiment. These are all ideologies which were altogether outside of the mainstream of American thought even a decade ago. I would expect dealing with children, dealing with taxpayer dollars, that we would proceed with care and with caution. If you feel it's vitally important that children learn gender ideology or critical race theory, at least start with small pilot programs and try to assess the long-term impacts of these. Instead, we have teachers insisting that it is their right, and in fact, it's their duty to pass these ideologies onto their students. Recently, we've seen countless videos of teachers in Florida, for example, defiantly claiming that they'll teach whatever they choose, state laws or otherwise. Now, forgive me for making this personal, but about 70% of public school teachers are women, and about the same percentage lean left. Which is all to say that one of the least mentally healthy demographics in the entire country represents the very same people who've decided that it's their God-given right to indoctrinate your kids. I don't begrudge liberals for being liberal, and I wholeheartedly support their right to raise their kids as they see fit. 
They should make every effort to instill in them the values that they think will make them the best citizens possible. But in their capacities as public school teachers, I would suggest they mostly leave the values and ideologies up to the parents. I don't think I've actually discussed any history this episode, so let me offer one brief story. There's a study you may have heard of. It has a very dramatic name, the Monster Study. A speech pathologist named Wendell Johnson conducted an experiment where children at an orphanage would receive an hour of tutoring once a month from a graduate student. The grad student was instructed to provide encouragement to half the students and to sharply criticize the speech of the other half, informing them that they show signs of developing a stutter. Almost immediately, by the second or third visit, the children receiving criticism became afraid to speak. Some actually began to stutter. They developed tics. It's a really famous study because of the very obvious ethical implications of experimenting on and measurably worsening the life of orphans. Now, obviously, they didn't go into this with the intention of hurting kids, and obviously, if they'd known, they never would have conducted the study, and also, of course, This is an extreme example, but all the same, the relevant lesson is this. A teacher can seriously mess up a child, even a well-meaning teacher. And we're likewise experimenting with our children with these new ideologies, new philosophies. We just don't know what the long-term effects are. I think I'm just about over my time, but I do have one more comment. While researching this, you can imagine how many absolutely outlandish examples of gender and race teaching, pandering to kids like their delicate flowers, etc. that I ran into. But I ran into this article in Psychology Today and I just can't get it out of my mind. It's why white shame is a term everyone should learn. The article draws a distinction between white guilt and white shame, with shame apparently being the preferred emotion of the two. Here's a quote. White guilt has unfortunately been overused and weaponized in discourse about racism. It has become a tool to communicate, I feel bad, I don't know what to do, so back off. Those who claim they have white guilt may be seen as inauthentic or performative. But she elaborates that white shame is the true and honest sign of white atonement. Quote, white shame results in condemnation of yourself as a white person rather than specific racist actions. Shame is a necessary requirement for true anti-racism development. And I know this is all such an easy target and I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just want to point out that Psychology Today is a very influential magazine. It has the largest publication of any magazine on the subject of psychology. And well, when those legions of young depressed people seek counseling, can you guess what magazine they're probably going to see in their therapist lobbies? Anyways, that is my time for today. As always, thank you so much for listening and hopefully you'll hear from me soon.